This is the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast, brought to you by Self-Care for Teachers, helping you prioritize your health, happiness, and well-being so that you can thrive in the classroom and in life. I'm your host, Ellen Ronalds Keane, reminding you that you're a person first and a teacher second, and you are allowed to look after you. This episode of the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast is brought to you by the Resilient Teacher Roadmap Course, an eight-week online course for tired teachers to learn how to cultivate well-being and build resilience throughout the school year, not just on the school holidays. Because the truth is that the cure for teacher burnout is not self-care. It's actually systemic and cultural change, real workload reduction, and deep abiding community care. But sadly, that's not the world we currently live in. I believe we can get there, but in order for any of us to be involved in creating and receiving the benefits of those changes, we need to survive and function this term, this week, today. The key to that is building resilience and cultivating well-being through self-advocacy, self-compassion and transformational self-care, not just the Instagrammable kind. So the Resilient Teacher Roadmap course is a framework, not a prescription. It's not a quick fix. It's also not PD or an academic course. It's about your beliefs and behaviours and how they impact and keep you on the downward depletion spiral or on the upwards resilience spiral. Yes, you'll learn practical strategies and be given tips, tricks and activities to try at home. But even more than that, you'll learn the skills to continually take into account the reality of your life and work and to differentiate for what you actually need to support your personal well-being sustainably over the long term. Find out more at selfcareforteachers.com.au forward slash roadmap. And now enjoy the episode. In this episode of the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast, I have a really valuable and vulnerable conversation with Laura, who you may know from Instagram as Educating Laura, or from her podcast, which is called After the Bell. Laura is a high school teacher from Victoria, and we recorded this while in lockdown, so there is a little bit of background noise from her kids, but of course, we all know the realities of lockdowns these days, don't we? Laura tells us about her journey overcoming the martyr syndrome that exists in our education culture, and I think it is such an important conversation. For example, she tells us about the problematic beliefs she had that made such a struggle to take the work emails off her phone uh, and feeling the pressure to be available 24-7 for work based on comments that certain people had at her work had made, as well as the huge difference it makes to have a principal who understands and actively supports teachers' well-being as people first and teachers second. Laura also tells us about a couple of big personal wake-up calls that started to really shift her focus on herself and what really matters in her life. And I do want to just share a content warning that we do touch on pregnancy loss in this episode. So just be aware of that as you listen. And Laura also tells us about what well-being looks like for her these days and top tips that she has for early career teachers. And she's got some really great suggestions. So I think it'll be really valuable. Just before I get to the interview, I want to let you know that now is a great time to put your name on the waiting list to work with me when I come back from maternity leave in 2022. I will only be back very part-time, so it will definitely be a case of first in best dressed. 
and the waiting list for my one-on-one coaching or for the Resilient Teacher Group coaching program will be notified first when spots open up in my calendar. So I'm going to pop a link uh, in the description below. You can click away, pop your email address in, absolutely no obligation. But if you are thinking about coaching with me or working with me in 2022, you really do need to be on that list. Uh, Otherwise, you may miss out. There is also a waiting list for the School Wellbeing Champions too. So in 2020 and 2021, I've run a number of meetups and workshops for School Wellbeing Champions who are the amazing educators and staff members who are driving wellbeing initiatives from the ground up in schools, really. And in 2022, I plan to run some more of those with options for both PD relating to wellbeing initiatives that you can run in your school and opportunities for networking and connecting and learning from other wellbeing champions around Australia. So if that sounds like you, pop your name on the interest list at selfcareforteachers.com.au forward slash wellbeing champions. And of course, the link will also be in the show notes and the description of your podcast app. So you can click away and pop your name on that interest list too. Okay, without further ado, here is this beautiful conversation with Educating Laura. Hi, Laura. Thanks for coming on the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast. Such a pleasure. How are you, Ellen? I'm well today. It's lovely. <laughs> How are you? Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being here. You have a podcast of your own, which is called After the Bell, and we're doing a bit of a guest swap, which is cool. I'll make sure I link in the show notes to your podcast. And let's dive straight in. So can you tell us a bit about your background as a teacher? Yes. Yeah, so I've been teaching since 2008. I'm a secondary teacher. I'm trained to teach English, literature, biology, junior science and dance. Wow, what a mix. Yeah, so I did an arts and science degree at university and then I did a diploma of education in secondary teaching, which was perfect for me because I was able to, you know, really sink my teeth into that content and then get in the classroom quick. I've had a number of pre-service teachers and trained teachers on my podcast that talk a lot about not enough in school training. I know you had a different experience, Helen, which is amazing. But, you know, for me, I had pretty much 10 weeks of training and straight into the classroom. And look, it was full on, but I don't think I would have benefited from staying more and doing much more theory. I think I just needed to get out there. So that was good. I teach at a government school. I've been teaching year 12 to year 12 classes for many years until I went on maternity leave And I've always continuously done tutoring. I was once a biology tutor for a private school in the area for their international students for probably the year. And that that year was the year that their two biology teachers had babies. And so there was a lot of movement. And so, you know, I was supposed to be the tutor for the international students that were staying on campus. And I ended up being the tutor for the cohort. They all just turned up because they had so much instability in their course. So and in the school. So that was a bit of fun, something interesting. And yeah, podcasting now. So podcasting, I had my one year anniversary this month. Yes, because you're in regional Victoria. And so you have been in and out of lockdown and you are in lockdown as we speak. And hopefully you'll be out of lockdown by the time this episode airs. Uh, And so you started the podcast as a lockdown project, right? Last year? Yeah, yeah. So I'm technically in Metro Melbourne. And so I have been hit with all of the lockdowns. So we are at 200 days now of lockdown plus. So it was the year. So last year I was still on maternity leave. I had a two, no, what was he? One and a three-year-old at home and I needed something. So I've always been really, really close with my colleagues at work. And so I was involved in all of their discussions and I could see what was going on, 
you know, with how they were coping with online and it was really hard for them. And I made a couple of videos to support them in, you know, like how to organize a study timetable. And, you know, for Year 12 English, I, I created a couple of videos to support them in their SAC, you know, study and stuff like that. And I really enjoyed it because I love creating content. I really enjoy being creative. And I thought I need to do something else because at the end of the day, my mates are going to make all their own content. They're not going to need me sitting on the sidelines creating things for them. So I thought, what else could I do? And it was at that time that I was thinking maybe I need to do a bit more tutoring. And so I started Instagram to start with that and started to get a lot of teacher followers. So as much as I wanted, I thought this is where the students will be. I'll, I'll get on Instagram and I'll get and no, that's uh, where the teachers are and the teacher yeah, that's where the teachers are. So that's what ended up happening. And so I started to make a number of connections on that. And I thought, how cool would it be for me to actually have those conversations? Because it's all really nice to look at someone's, you know, grid and their stories and stuff, but it's not the same as actually interacting with someone. And so I started off with people that I know. I've had some ex-students on that are doing incredible things. And then from there, I think one of my first sort of reach outs was her name's Meg Thompson and she is a behaviorist. I think, I think it is. She's not a behavior consultant. It's a behaviorist, I think, where she is all about supporting students without fear. So I loved having that conversation with her. She's very, very out there and she's very passionate and she at times is aggressive against those reward-based systems and fear-based systems and she blew my mind. And after that, I just started going, you know what, if she's going to say yes, you know, she's got 20,000 followers. I had, I don't know, 300 at the time. If she's going to say yes to me, well, I'm just going to ask. And so that's what I've been doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's the beauty of podcasts is you get to have these amazing conversations with people you probably wouldn't get to have conversations with otherwise. Yes. And people can hear it too. And people can actually hear the honesty of people and they can hear the passion within people. And I think in a way, being an English teacher has made me almost the perfect candidate to host a podcast because I'm good at steering a conversation. I'm good at asking probing questions. You know, I've been doing it for many years. So yeah, it's been an easy transition, I suppose. I mean, still teaching, but it's it's not been that hard work in terms of getting content. Yeah. yeah. And you are still teaching, so you're part-time? Yeah, three days. Because you've got little ones at home. I do. Yeah, yep. So there's that many hats <laughs> going on. Yep, definitely. Uh, well, so let's talk about your health and well-being, you know, over the many years that you have been a teacher. Can you tell us about some of the health and well-being challenges that you've experienced in that time? Yes. So the first thing I want to say is that many of my health and well-being challenges have come from that martyr syndrome in education. So I think many teachers get into teaching because they were praised for doing a good job. They were praised for being, quote unquote, a good person, you know, whether they were behaving well, did academics well, got good marks, all of those things. So I think a lot of people that go into education are used to that kind of praise. And so you go into education or go into teaching wanting to do the best job. And whether you need acknowledgement or not, you know, just the knowledge yourself that you're doing everything you can, you're doing the best that you can be doing, that your, your kids are performing, that all of those things. And so you tend to start without realizing it, just putting yourself lower and lower and lower and lower down the priority list. And 
I mean, I had four years off maternity leave on maternity leave and I came back and I started doing it again. And I know better, like logically I know better, but there's an environmental pull that happens in teaching because that's what all teachers do. Yeah. It's a huge cultural thing. And that's what happened again this year. I, my first term, I got really sick and I didn't put my wellbeing first. And some of the comments were made to me, you know, well, you can't take any time off. You've got year 12, you know, and those things stick and you feel bad and you think you're not doing a good job. And it really clashes with that internal monologue of, but I am a good worker. I am a hard worker. I do prioritize kids. I do prioritize my job. And I think, as I said, a lot of my well-being struggles have come from me thinking, well, if I have the plan, I execute the plan, I do the right thing, it'll all work out, which was a lot of my messaging for a very long time and it got me into a bit of trouble. Mm, it's that soldier on thing. Totally, totally, totally. And I think, you know, I saw this last year something about disrupting the grind culture, you know, stop wearing, you know, busy as a badge of honour, all those things. And those are the messages I've always received. Just get on with it. It'll be fine, you know. And unfortunately, you know, I had a few things in my life that really pushed me off course. And I think for the better, but I had to learn the hard way. Mm, Yeah. What did that look like for you learning the hard way? So I'll talk professionally and personally. So when I first started teaching in 2008, I had a dance background and it just so happened that the choreographer for the school production was leaving that year. So I remember being in my part-time job, you know, in retail, getting a call from the school saying, hey, could you be the choreographer for the production? And I was like, oh, sounds great, which I did for five years. And production is one of those things. And and I have to say there is so much inequity in roles of responsibility because production was two hours, two nights a week, plus you start doing Sunday rehearsal for five hours. Plus you then have your bump in week and your rehearsal week, and then you've got to do the set design. And then you've got to obviously outside of that, create all the dancers and work with all the staff. And it was a lot. It was a lot. So that was my first year. And because in Victoria, you have, I think it's two or three periods down as a grad teacher because I was doing production, I was technically overallotted because I was I was allocated one period a yeah. week to do that. But it's way more than one period a week. And you never use that pe- that period in the day. It's never when you're doing it. It's always outside of hours anyway. And so that period a week goes to photocopying and marking. So, you know, it's a nice idea. And I don't know how else you make it equitable because the people that do it, do it because they love it. Yeah, that's right. And I think anyone who's not had anything to do with the arts doesn't understand how much is involved in productions and musicals and things. I was a music teacher, so I totally, totally get it. I think people who are not in, you know, not in the arts, just they don't see a lot of it because it is all after hours. It's so much. I will never forget. I had a student teacher one year and I will preface this by saying I had to ask her why she wanted to be a teacher. She seemed to have no interest in doing it at all. But we, she'd followed me around all day and she hadn't taught. It was one of her, you know, maybe earlier, earlier days of, of um, teaching. She was in her second year. So I was pushing her to teach and she was very reluctant. And I'm like, well, what are you doing here? And she'd followed me around all day and she came to the production rehearsal and we were there, I don't know, 20 minutes. I think we were starting to do roll call and get everything organized. And she came up to me and she goes, oh, Laura, 
I just have to go home. I'm just too tired. <laughs> I was like, you haven't even, like, you've watched my day. You haven't. And I don't mean to sound, you know, high and mighty, like, how good am I? But that was the thing. Like, that's the thing that I did every day. And, of course, you get too tired. Of course, you then lie on the couch when you get home. Of course, you have no energy to organize plans on the weekends when, you know, someone watching your day can't even finish your day. Yeah. You know, and then from there, and again, I think that this is something that tends to happen with grad teachers. I was pulled aside in my second year and asked, no, end of my first year, I started working the job in my second year was to be assistant science coordinator for the school. So another extra responsibility. Another extra responsibility. So I was over allotted for probably four of my, four or five of my years at the first five years of my teaching. So I. So you didn't know any different. No, I had no idea. I was like, oh, that's good. I don't get any sort of top-up classes. I don't get any extra classes. Well, yeah, but you never get as many top-up classes as you being over allotted. No, as you're doing all those extra roles, yeah. That's right. And so and that particular year, yeah, so I was taking production and I was this assistant science coordinator and it happened to be the year that the actual science coordinator, his family had their first child. And so he was absent a fair bit and I was trying to run this faculty that I had absolutely no idea how to do and that perfectionism in me really struggled with it because he wasn't there to mentor me through it. I didn't know what I was doing. No one else was doing that job. I had production. I was trying to work out how to teach. And so it's all of those things, all of those hats that you wear, all of those things that think you think make you look, you know, so accomplished and, you know, like you're doing such a great job and look, people really think so highly of me. They're offering me all these roles. It took a day where I was teaching my year 12 biology class and it was and this is my fifth year. Like it's not, this is not an early revelation for me. I just kind of, again, soldiered on. I was teaching my biology class and it was production week and I was absolutely exhausted. And I remember reading off a PowerPoint in biology. And usually I don't do that. Usually the PowerPoint is kind of behind me and I, I act out things and I talk about things. We have conversations and I was literally reading word for word off this PowerPoint and I stopped and I looked at my class and I said, does any of this make sense to you? And they're looking at me like, yeah. And I said, I just feel like this is not very exciting. And this is, I don't feel like I'm doing a great job reading off this. And they said, no. And they were very sweet. They're like, no, it's okay. Like we understand. And I was like, I don't want you to understand. I want you to be excited. I want you to love this. I want you to be part of this. I don't want you to be, to understand that I've had a bad day. I don't want you to understand that, you know, I'm too tired to do much more than read off a PowerPoint. And that's when I went into my assistant principal and I said, I can't keep doing this. Something's got to give. Yeah. So I gave up the roles and, you know, I did little things like, well, not little, but, you know, things that weren't as time consuming. So I would do, you know, your VIT mentoring and I would mentor teachers and I would. So you're still doing extra things. You weren't just, you weren't just teaching, but they were not as, not as overwhelmingly. Yes. At school at the time. If you were of a certain, you know, experience level, you were expected to do extra roles. And so that's when I started to be strategic. That's when I started to go, okay, what roles tick that box? Yeah, without it being overwhelming. Exactly, exactly. And I think that schools can be a little bit underhanded in picking the teachers that don't know better, that don't understand how much work comes with things. And I certainly was... I mean, the choreography made sense. I was the only dance teacher at the school, but the assistant science coordinator, that was very strategic because no one wanted it. Yeah, exactly. And they offer it to a, a newbie who 
doesn't know better, doesn't know how much what they're signing up for and doesn't know and already has a huge role, you know, already is doing a lot extra and and doesn't know, uh, you know, what they're getting themselves into. That's right. And also the sort of teacher that wants to be the good teacher, wants to be doing all the things, wants to be giving back to the school. You know, I know I see a lot of young, often single women really tapped on the shoulder for those big jobs because everyone else has kind of worked out that there's there's a lot of work involved in that. Yeah. And have commitments that mean they actually can't, you know, can't devote that type of time. And and I don't know what the solution is because we need to, you know, it's great to have those extracurricular activities as an option for students, but we don't acknowledge them and the amount of time that goes into them on the unpaid time from teachers. And I'm not sure what the solution is, but I agree with you that that it, it's at the school level because it's not fair to put it on the individuals because it is. And I was a music teacher. I loved musical, you know, but it is so much work. Like it is. And I was young and single. Well, I wasn't single, but, you know, I didn't have dependents at home. <laughs> yeah. And that's what, when I say single, that's probably more what I mean, you know, like you know, people that are, and it's awful, but there's a stereotype that, you know, if you're unmarried, that the children are a little bit further down the way. And as I said, it's not okay. But I've heard those conversations. I've heard those conversations about, you know, well, that person will be in the job longer, you know, which is a societal issue. So that was what I would often say as a mentor to teachers, you know, really consider what is involved in that role. Don't be, you know, blinded by the fact that, oh, they chose me or they saw me. Yeah, there could be a bit of that, but there also could be no one wants it and you're not going to say no. Especially if you're on, you know, contract, you don't have a job for next year locked in, so you feel like you can't say no. Yeah, there's so many layers to that, isn't there? Yep. Yeah. So tell me about what changed then for you. You started to get a bit more strategic. You started to kind of realize that you didn't have to be so far down your own list and that perfectionist, that martyr tendency. When did you start to notice that or be aware of that and start to combat that? So honestly, it didn't happen until I decided that I wanted something outside of education, which was my own family. Really, it took until then. And so by then I was in my seventh and eighth year of teaching. So I learned the lessons in really long ways. So the first lesson I learned ultimately is I felt as though I wasn't doing a good job teaching. And ultimately, that's my love. That's my passion. I want to be a good teacher. So I gave away some of those really intense extracurriculars. And then a couple of years later, I thought, you know what? I want my own. I want to do this for myself. Like I feel like I've mothered all of these kids and I've been that kind of, you know, safe adult for so many kids and I've loved it, but I've now need, I need a shift. And again, as I said to you, like my life lesson was always you plan and you do a good job and things happen, you know, you work hard. And that was kind of my mantra, I suppose. And so I got to that end of the year, I remember seeing like a naturopath or something. I'm like, I'm going to get my body into a really good position to be ready to have a baby. And I went and it was in the middle of year 12 exam time. And I had my email connected to my phone and I was in this consultation, whatever appointment, and my phone kept going off. And so I'm just going to pause that. And she could see that I was a bit sort of agitated. My phone kept going off. And she said to me, well, what's that? And I said, oh, it's just my emails, just my work emails. And she said, look, you look a little bit stressed, you know, and, you know, you're thinking about having a baby. Look, at, could you maybe turn your emails off your phone? When you're in a medical appointment. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. And she's like, do you think you could 
take your work emails off your phone altogether. It's like, no, no, I can't do that. No. It's like, well, okay, so let's unpack that statement. I'm like, well, no, I can't because, you know, my year 12s have got their exams and, you know, they're writing their essays and they're asking me questions. And, you know, if I don't answer them, then they won't have the feedback to move on to the next thing. And, you know, and I honestly, it blows my mind that I literally believed this, that I could not and I could not turn my emails off my phone. I couldn't. And this woman was so lovely and she's like, okay, yeah, so why don't we think about taking a couple of hours where you don't check it or could you turn, you know, the notifications off so that you have to go in? I mean, I now do not have my work emails connected to my phone at all. And the world didn't end. Well, I mean, you know, maybe the pandemic's your fault because you took the emails off your phone. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) How did I not make that connection, Alan? Yes. No, it's all my fault. Sorry, guys. Um, But, you know, it's just you don't have to do that. But I felt so much like I had to and I had to be available 24-7. And at the time we had a principal who would praise us for being available 24-7 and you know, there was so much in the culture of that school about doing that, you know, which has moved on, thank goodness, and is not part of it. And also I'm in a different part of my life now. But so that was one of the big things that I started to, people started to question, well, does it have to be that way? And then I, my husband wanted to have children a little bit earlier than me and I knew that it would be hard work and I knew that, you know, it would sort of shift my identity and I wanted to be really ready. And so I got to a place where I was like, yep, I'm ready to go. And I did, we did the tests and we went to the naturopath and we did detox and we did all the things. We're ready to go. And it didn't happen straight away. And that for me. Also really common. Yes, very common. But for me, who was someone that was like, well, you put a plan together and you work really hard. And if you're a good person, things just kind of come. And that was very much how I had lived my life and how I had been successful in my life up until that point. And so- didn't happen straight away. And I struggled with that, really struggled with the fact that I was ready and everything was ready and it wasn't happening. And so I threw myself further into my work because I was good at that, you know? And so I would overcompensate by being so available at work because things in my personal life were not happening in the timeframe that I wanted. And I ultimately fell pregnant. This is not a nice story. So I don't know, you might want to put a trigger warning on it. I might put a trigger warning at the start. Yeah. Yeah. So I ultimately fell pregnant and that was great. And we went to our, I think it was 10 or 11 week appointment ultrasound. We were told that there was no heartbeat and I was on school holidays and I came back from school holidays and there was a staff member who was announcing her pregnancy on the day that I should have been announcing my pregnancy at the same time. And I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. I just went to class. I kept going. I didn't talk to anybody really about it. There were a couple of close people that sort of knew, but I kept that in and I didn't say anything and I just kept working. And my thought was, well, I'll just get pregnant again and it will be okay. I won't have to deal with that. And what ended up happening, and it did take my body, and again, if this is you, it did take my body a little bit of time to kind of recalibrate after that situation. But in my mind, I'm like, we'll just get, we'll just get pregnant again and it will be fine. And I, I also had a bit of a time frame, and I've had a few people say this to me, the time frame, like I wanted to have a baby at 30. I ultimately had a baby at 31. Like it was, but I was so fixated on the fact that it wasn't on the time frame, it wasn't on the plan, it wasn't, 
we were ready and it was it should have happened, right? And you had a plan and this is what you do. You have a plan, you work the plan, and then you get the result. And there's, you know, no outside influence. It's all 100% in your control. That's right. That's right. And I think that there is a fair bit of probably my own personality that is that, but also the teaching profession that has validated that for me. Because that's what we do day in, day out. We make a plan. Yes, we sometimes have to adapt in the middle, but we plan, we action the plan, and then, you know, we do the reporting and then we we wrap it all up. That's the way the system works. Exactly right. And so it wasn't until I was at work and my husband was doing some renovations on the house and we had this bungalow at the back and we were turning, we had these sort of windows that he was pulling out to put in a door, like a French doors. And I got a call from at school saying, your husband has been taken in an ambulance to the hospital. You need to go now. And so the office ladies found me and they're like, don't want to alarm you, but you need to go. Your husband's in hospital. So I went and he had this particular piece of glass. It was really old, old glass that just shatters. And it had been, he'd taken out three panes of it. And the fourth pane had been glued in with a different glue, like not the right glue. And so when he went to sort of move it, it just shattered in his hand and broke all the way on him. So he severed like an artery in his arm and his leg. Like it was full on, full on. And I remember just going, what am I doing? What am I doing? Like, who cares? Who cares if I have a timeline? Who cares if this happens or it doesn't happen? Like, why am I pushing this so much to the point that I can't see what's going on? Mm, and the things that you have in your life already. Yeah. You know, it's it's not until we sometimes when we almost lose them or we have, you know, those big moments that are quite frightening mm-hmm. that we actually face that stuff. And that was what it was for me. And I went, you know what? Me accomplishing something is not going to help me deal with what I've now been through. So that's when I started to see a counsellor. And I've been very open on Instagram about the fact that I see a therapist once a month now and have continued to pretty much from that time because there were things in my life and, and mantras and belief systems that no longer served me that I had to undo. You know, and that was a big one about, you know, if you're a good person and you plan things everything happens because you know what? Fertility doesn't work like that. Life doesn't really work like that. You know, people have accidents, people have (laughs) pandemics, you know, just life doesn't really work like that. But we absolutely have so many of us have internalized that message. And that's the thing for me, fertility was that vehicle for that lesson, you know, and I think that those vehicles come in so many different ways. I remember someone speaking to me after having the miscarriage and saying that, you know, I don't understand what that's like. I said, yeah, But I don't think you have to have had that experience to show me empathy because that experience and that vehicle will come in different ways for you. And that's fine. You don't, I don't want you to have gone through this. I don't want that for you, but I'm sure that there's things in your life that allow you to meet me at this place. Absolutely. And just, you know, just to have empathy for what that might be like, even if we haven't actually experienced it. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you've shared that and, you know, being so open as well about the fact that you still see a therapist. I see one too. And I think it's really important that we, we get the emotional support that we need because, you know, the mental health, emotional health side of things is often, I mean, I think there's a bit more conversation about it these days, but even still in teaching, I think it's something that is, we're not always able to be open about it. And sometimes that's because the school culture is that if you admit to any weakness, you know, they're 
is a challenge. Although I would hope that that's really, sh- I, th- I think some things have really shifted since the pandemic because people, it's a bit of a wake up call for everybody in many, many different ways. Um, yeah. And, you know, certainly the, I don't know what it's like on the inside, but the rhetoric that I'm seeing and hearing about, you know, working from home with our remote learning, online learning, there is a bit more acknowledgement of that mental health aspect of it from what I'm seeing at least that schools are acknowledging that. I hope that that's happening for you if that's, um, you know. It definitely is. We've got a new principal who, you know, as I said, I was not well early this year that I had to take some extended time off and I spoke to him because, again, I felt, A, this guy doesn't know me. He's a new principal. I've just turned back up after four years of maternity leave. Here I am taking this time, not to mention the additional time you have to take when you've got little children, you know. So I've taken off more time this year than I ever have. And it's certainly, I, even as I say that, I'm like, oh, it just doesn't sit with me taking that much time off. But so I spoke to him. I went and spoke to him because I wanted to, you know, put a face to this person that was on the extras list. And he just said to me, he said, oh, Laura, you know, Number one is well-being. Number one, you, your health, that's number one. Number two is your personal relationships, things that go on outside of this school. And he goes, I love this school. I love being here. But this is number three. This is somewhere down the list that, you know, it doesn't trump those other things. And it was so helpful. And if you are a teacher out there that hasn't heard that, I hope that you can hear that and I hope that that gives you some validation that there are leaders out there that are saying those things. Yeah, absolutely. And it's makes such a difference when it comes from the top because, you know, it's really hard when that's not the message coming from the top. And I know that that's the case for some people, but yeah, I love that. It it is possible. There are leaders out there who have that approach. And if you're in a school where that's not what's happening, you can at least hear it from us today and still take that on board for yourself and know that, yeah, school is somewhere down the list because the personal health, if that goes, you can't show up to school anyway. And when, when life is impacting on those other personal factors, relationships, family, you know, school's not going to be the one that answers your your tearful phone call at three in the morning when something in life has happened. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So what does wellbeing look like for you at the moment, Laura? And I know that you are in lockdown with <laughs> little kids at home. It's all uh, a bit of a juggle. What does wellbeing look like for you at the moment? Wellbeing is about, for me now, realising that it can't be a huge indulgent thing, you know, like it used to be when I pre-kids, it would be like going to a spa or having a full day of doing nothing. Like that's not reality anymore. You know, I've already had the kids come in and interrupt this podcast, right? So it is not the big things for me now. It's the little things. It's, you know, a 10 minute meditation. It's having a bath by myself. It is, you know, eating good food. It's going outside. It's the things that, Keep me present, actually. That's probably the biggest thing is I've read that book, How to Do the Work by Dr. Nicole Pereira, and one of the exercises she has is spend three minutes a day really actively being present, you know, like wash the dishes and feel the water on your hands, listen to the plates as they move in in the sink, you know, really feel the light on your body as you're standing by the window, whatever. Three minutes of not thinking about something that's happened or something that's going to happen. And it's really hard. It's really hard. It's really hard for three minutes. You've got to do it. But it's also a muscle that you can build. Well, that's exactly right. And that's what I find is I don't sit in the present moment for very long. I'm Even if I'm sitting with my kids, I'm thinking I've got to do the washing, you know, or I've got that email to answer or whatever. So it's really about, for me, taking small moments to be really, really, really present and doing something that isn't work 
doesn't feel challenging or hard and is enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, look, and I think whether or not you've got kids, I think that that's really good advice because it doesn't, you know, well-being doesn't have to be that huge devotion of time and energy and like a whole day at the spa. Like it's those little things that add up over time and the little things consistently, you know, it's it's the same thing that we would say about like kids learning to read. You can't sit down with them for five hours on Saturday and do five hours of reading and then not not again for two weeks. That's not going to help them in the same way that 10 minutes a night does. It's those little bits consistently. And I love that you mentioned that, that that's not reality now. Like actually what is the reality of my life? What is possible in the reality of where I'm living, which is something that I often say to teachers about like rather than being all or nothing, so we have all the well-being in the school holidays and then nothing in the middle of the term, what could we realistically do in the middle of the term so that we're not completely ignoring and neglecting ourselves for 10 weeks at a time? Because it's it's not going to be easy. It's not going to look the same. But what is realistic in those moments? Because it'll be that little stuff. It'll be those five minutes here, five minutes there. Mm, yeah. And recognising the things that are, that are the sort of pointers that you're heading off the wagon. As I've said to you before on our podcast that we recorded Food is big for me. The minute I start going for a packet of chips after dinner, I'm like, okay. That's a a signal. That's a signal for me that I'm not in a good headspace or that I'm starting to need, what is it, like avoidance type behaviour. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so getting to know what what are our signals that mean we probably need to pay attention and maybe course correct a bit. Yes. Yeah, such a good point. So what would be your top tip for early career teachers, Laura? to set themselves up for a thriving career or even just a surviving career at this point in time? First thing is get a good mentor. If you can have a good mentor to bounce off that you really trust that can sort of give you the wisdom that you can't have as a grad teacher. And I mean, you may listen, you may not, you know, I have, I have had incredible mentors in my life and, um, having those honest conversations and being able to say, you know, is this a good idea for me to do this? Or how can I, focus on my teaching and and for someone to give you real actionable advice is really good. And you know what? There are lots of mentors online now, you know, look at Ellen, look at, there's lots of us out there. If you wanted to sort of DM someone and say, you know, what do you think about this? Getting some feedback helps. I think identifying what your focus is, you know, it took me five years to realize that my focus wasn't to do all the things. It was actually to be a really good classroom teacher, but that's what I want to be. You know, I enjoy teaching. That's my favorite part of the whole job, being in the classroom. And it sounds silly because you think, well, that is the job. It's it's not. There's so much that goes on outside of the classroom. But that's my favorite part. It's also why I've never pursued huge leadership roles because the more you do that, the less you're in the classroom with the kids. And so that's been a very conscious decision for me. What do I want to do? What brings me the most joy? And how do I get that in maximum in my job? Build a, build a good rapport with the kids. That's The kids are amazing, you know, and I've never met a bad kid. I've met a kid in bad situations. I've met a kid that acts in bad ways, but I've never met a bad kid. So, you know, if you get to know them within the parameters of your job, obviously, you know, you don't want to overstep any lines and ensure that your personal boundaries are very clear, but get to know them, build a good rapport with them, have some banter. You know, I'm high school. I love that. They love that. You know, we're doing that online at the moment and it's sad, but we're doing it in in text chat form. So get to know them. The other thing I would say too is 
you need to find a way to teach that aligns with your personality. If you are happy and outgoing and excitable, be that in the classroom. You don't have to be the scary one or the disciplinarian if that's not who you are, you know, and they can, they figure it out because if you're acting, you will dip in and out of it. They can tell. Yeah. And that you, and you will naturally dip in and out of it. And so be authentic. Kids love it. Kids love authenticity. Kids actually like a bit of vulnerability. One of my students actually listens to my podcast, which is kind of sweet. And she said to me, I really like it because it feels very natural. Like exactly what we've just done here, Ellen, you know, it feels like a conversation. I said, yeah, because you know what? I will have all my questions, kind of like my teaching. I have all my questions, have my plan there, but I will not execute the plan if something else is coming or if something is more exciting to to explore. And in order to get that, you have to give a little. So be prepared to give a little bit of yourself. You don't have to be behind a glass wall being perfect. You know, be a human in the classroom too. I think be a human. Yeah. Cause you're, and that's what I always say you're a person first and a teacher second. Like be the person. Yes. There's obviously professional boundaries, 100%. But yeah, be a person. And I think, you know, the, the real message that I'm getting from your story too is treat yourself like a person. Totally. Because you are, you are a person. And if you look after the person, the teacher will take care of themselves. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the other thing I've got here too is share the spotlight. So my thought as a teacher was that I had to be this all-knowing, all-organized person. And I think, you know, look, I I grew up in the 90s. I think that that was a pretty clear message to me as a student too, that that's how I was taught. And so it has taken a fair bit of unlearning in regards to that too. But share the space, get the students to be the teachers, get some guest speakers in, do some team teaching, like change it up. You do not have to be the performer in the room every lesson. It's exhausting. It's not sustainable. And it's not sharing, it's not sharing the power within the room. It's not sharing the knowledge within the room. Yeah. So share it. I love that. I really love that. And what a beautiful place to wrap up. So Laura, tell us where people can find you. Obviously, Instagram. Yeah, Instagram at Educating Laura. And so I was originally tutoring by Laura and I changed it to Educating Laura for two reasons. One, because obviously I'm a teacher and education makes sense. And second, because I'm learning every single day, I'm still being educated. And that's what my podcast is about too, being open to new experiences of learning from everybody else. So after the bell with Educating Laura and at Educating Laura on Instagram. Yes. And we will put all those links in the show notes and the description of this episode so people can click straight on through. Thank you. This has been such a lovely conversation. Thank you, Laura. Pleasure. Good to chat to you again. It has been great. Thanks for listening to the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast brought to you by Self-Care for Teachers. If you've enjoyed it, go ahead and subscribe in your chosen podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify, hit the three dots, share it to your Facebook or Instagram stories and let your friends know that you're listening. And if something in this episode made you think about a teacher that you care about and you think they need to hear it, send it to them now. Let's spread the message of teacher wellbeing and together we can create thriving school communities. Show notes for the podcast can be found at www.selfcareforteachers.com.au forward slash podcast. And you can find me on Facebook and Instagram using the handle at selfcareforteachers. As always, remember you're a person first and a teacher second and you are worthy of your own care.